I'm Tim. If, if you weren't here earlier when I got out here and did the announcements, um, hi. I've got a cough drop, so I'll try to be not weird about it. So we're in the Sermon on the Mount. If you don't know, we're in the Sermon on the Mount. We didn't go with any fancy title. We just called it the Sermon on the Mount because we're going to be spending time in the Sermon on the Mount. And last week we went a little bit out of order because we wanted to establish somewhat of the why behind the Sermon on the Mount and, and really what, what Jesus is, is targeting and, and saying in this overall sermon. But um, in light of that and in light of the reality that, that the standard and the bar is set high by God, uh, by his call and his expectation for us, and that Jesus upholds that standard. Now we can go back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount and start from verse 1 in chapter 5, which we're going to do today. But to get us there, I want to tell you the story of something that happened yesterday. It's fresh on my mind because it happened yesterday. Angie and Leo and I decided to go to the zoo in the afternoon yesterday. It wasn't, like, terribly hot. I mean, because there's been heat advisories everywhere. Yesterday it was just like, I don't know, 82 or something like that. So, I mean, you could stand there and sweat, but, you know, it wasn't 90, you know. And so we, you know, we went and we basically went everywhere and saw what Leo wanted to see or whatever. He was really all about going to see the lions yesterday. And just as an aside, we got to the lion section and we didn't see any lions. But we went a little further and the lion was asleep against the glass. And you could literally get right up by it and see how big this thing was. And that made his day. So anyway, uh, but as we were getting to the tail end of our uh, adventure at the zoo, we, we, we walked near a place that's always dangerous for a four-year-old, one of the concession stands. <laughs> and this particular concession stand was a dip and dot stand, but they also had popcorn and cotton candy on the side. Now, Leo saw, the first thing he saw was the popcorn. And he said, I want popcorn. So I said, all right, you've done, you've done good. We've, we've managed to get out of this thing unscathed. I will oblige your popcorn request. But then we got in line, and he was there, and he goes, oh, I want Dippin' Dots, too. And I said, well, buddy, you've got to pick one. He goes, no, I want both. And I said, we're not doing both. Uh, like, I'd have to take out a second mortgage to get both. I need you to pick one. And so he picked popcorn. Now, as another aside, there was a guy standing behind me. Yesterday, I was wearing a Bengals and a hat and a red shirt, and the guy behind me was decked out in Pittsburgh Steelers attire. <laughs> so he hears my son say he wants popcorn, and he turns to me, the guy, or he, he, like he says to me, the guy behind me, he goes, he goes, man, that kid's weird, only wanting, like, wanting popcorn instead of ice cream on a day like this. And I turned to him, and I was like, I'm pretty sure this is about not my kid, so leave him out of it. <laughs> no, I did not say that. <laughs> he ended up leaving the line, and which gets me to the actual real reason I'm telling this story. The line seemed like it was going to be short. 
But there was a family in front uh, of me, and, and Leah was getting so kind of tired, and, and Angie had, had stuck near like our stuff. And so I said, hey, buddy, he's starting to lean against my leg. I said, why don't you go over to Mama? I'll wait in line and I'll get your popcorn. The family in front has kids that keep coming out of the bushes and everything. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how they could afford the, the amount of Dippin' Dots they were getting, but I'm, I'm watching, and you should know I'm a people watcher, so I'm just watching all this unfold, unfold trying to be non-judgmental, just watching what's happening. And, and the dad keeps getting each kid exactly what they asked for. I'm like, this dad is amazing. He's got like a memory. He remembered everything that they said, and he's asking for it. And then handing, he's like, okay, I've got the mint one that was this kid here. And then I noticed something out of the corner of my eye to my left. Their littlest kid decides to go try to break into the little drink kiosk. This kid had to have been in the ballpark of two to three years old. And his, his older sister, who was probably in the ballpark of five, six maybe, has her Dippin' Dots ice cream and sees that a calamity is about to unfold with her little brother. And so she runs over because he's got the whole thing open and is about to start pulling drinks down. And she grabs him with one hand and gets to pull him away and gets the door closed, being a, a good older sister and, and a good kid in the moment to her dad, who is also being dad of the year in the moment. But something happens. In her right hand, she's holding her Dippin' Dots, and as she's trying to remedy the situation with her little brother, the Dippin' Dots tip, and about half of the container falls on the ground. And this little girl goes, oh, like that, and doesn't say a word to her dad, doesn't ask for more, takes what she has left, he pays, and they all go on. And I finally get the popcorn that was not worth the wait. <laughs> that moment signified something to me. That sometimes in life, when we strive to do good, when we strive to uphold what we're called to do, things sadly don't always go the way that we would like them to go. And we are often not repaid in the way that we ought to be. And, and yes, I'm choosing my words carefully there, in the way that we ought to be, because good should be repaid with good. But we live in a sinful and broken and fallen world, and sometimes that isn't the case. And in the case of this little girl, she's being a good big sister and a good daughter and trying to police a situation that's unfolding. And in her efforts to do good, she loses half of her dip and dots. She deserved more dip and dots. She deserved an extra dip and dots. Even though, as I've established, that would have been a lot of dip and dots for dad to have had to pay for. But she didn't even ask, she just moved on. We're going to look at the Beatitudes this morning. And it the Beatitudes are a passage, they're the, the opening teaching from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And they're, they're ones that if you've been a churchgoer for a long time, you, you've probably heard them preached on. You've probably read them before. 
Maybe you have them on a, on an, a piece of artwork in your home. Maybe you can recall them from memory. Maybe you've thought about them deeply. Maybe they've provided comfort to you. But the Beatitudes are also something that Jesus taught to a people in a context where they were not only shocking, but what Jesus said was a reversal of the circumstances that they were experiencing in the world that they lived in. To give you a very, very brief overview of that cultural context before we get into the text itself, the Jewish people that lived in the land of Israel at the time of Jesus, which comprised of the majority of Jesus' earliest followers and those that came to listen to him preach and to see him work his miraculous deeds, they lived under the occupation of the world power of the day, the Romans. And they also lived in, a, in a, an agrarian world, one where um, uh, common trades and farming and, and hunting and gathering and, and fishing and all those things were mostly the way in which they acquired what they needed to live. They also lived uh, in a Roman-occupied state. The Romans were uh, experts at legionizing, yes, I just made that word up, their, uh, their power over others. They had military might. Their military, their soldiers, those cohorts were referred to as legions. And they ruled with power, coercion, and a mighty fist, and not in the good way. Not only that, but in the world of Jesus' earliest followers, roughly 2 to 3% of the population made up what you would consider the economically elite, the haves. 97% of the population were the have-nots. And so, while there were times uh, of sustenance and times of plenty, most of the time, the Jewish people under the occupation of Rome were dealing with having very little, wondering where their next meal would come from, wondering if all the work that they just put in the night before would be so heavily taxed that they'd have nothing to show for it, wondering if what they did have would be taken from them by the overlords that were overseeing them at a moment's notice. It wasn't exactly a great situation to live in. Furthermore, you should also know that when you read your Old Testament, the Jewish people at the time of Jesus weren't the first group of Jewish people to deal with this level of oppression. It was sadly kind of their thing. It was common. That's why there are so many stories told. Even the Jewish people all the way back in the story of the Exodus, where they're enslaved by the Egyptians, and God has to rescue them with his strong arm. It is a recurring theme that the Jewish people throughout biblical history are in a state of oppression. And the Jewish people at the time of Jesus, the people that he was a part of, were not any different. 
They would strive to live faithfully to God, but they couldn't look you in the eye and say they have much to show for it. Things didn't always click. If you were with us during our series on the Psalms, you'll remember that we talked about Psalms of disorientation. And the reason was is because the people often believed that if I go the way of God, that God's promises will unfold in my life and I will benefit from them. And so when things end up out of whack, we become disoriented. It shouldn't be this way. I should be able to live off of what I've produced in my work, but it's being taken from me. Why, God, why is it this way? Have you forgotten me? That group of people with those thoughts, those ideas, that level of perseverance to grind out and eke out a life under the oppression of a dominating world power, that group is the people that Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount to. And when Jesus opens up his first section of teaching, what he says would have shocked people like that. But it also would have given them hope. Because what Jesus alludes to in his teaching is a great reversal of fortune for the, his, the people that he's speaking to. And so with that background in mind, I want us to read with fresh eyes and fresh ears the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, which occur in Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now again, maybe you've read this heard this many times over. But when you consider the ears hearing this teaching from Jesus when he first taught it, these statements are provocative. So I want to unpack them for us so we get a better grasp 
on what Jesus is saying and, and how it applies to us today. And the first word to start with is our, our, our word blessed. Uh, for a while, we don't know what happened to it. We had like a, like a Thanksgiving-y looking uh, light-up sign that said blessed on it. Anybody else have blessed somewhere in their home? Anybody? Anybody ever use hashtag blessed? You're not going to own up to it now because you, you already know <laughs> where I'm going, maybe. I don't know. So the word blessed is an interesting word because many of the words Jesus uses in this passage have meanings in English that don't necessarily correlate to the meanings in the, the words behind our English translation here. Some better translations for blessed that is a word that's become admittedly so uh, religious to us would be words like happy or fortunate. The idea here is that uh, good fortune, good tidings, good outcomes will come to those in whom Jesus is describing here. It's not necessarily that he's giving them a, a word that they can go around and say, hey, I'm blessed because of this reason or that. Instead, he is, he is saying, hey, those of you that are living lives that actually aren't really marked by happiness or fortune actually will be happy and fortunate because the kingdom is in focus now and things are about to turn upside down. And so he says all of these things with these phrases, blessed are the poor in spirit, which Blessed in Latin is why we get the word for beatitude here, and that's why we call this the beatitudes here. So Jesus says things like, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And it's important that we understand even the people that Jesus is referring to here. Because again, these words that we have in English might draw up connotations that don't necessarily perfectly align with what's going on here. For instance, if you know the Gospel of Luke in the Sermon on the Plain, you may know that Luke just says, blessed are the poor. And Matthew here has, blessed are the poor in spirit. But the reality is, is that what Matthew is saying and what Luke are saying are not different things at all. Matthew's actually emphasizing the state of being for a person that is poverty-stricken. So he uses the phrase, blessed are the poor in spirit, but they're talking about the same group. They're talking about people, again, 97% of whom in this world are have-nots. They don't know where their next meal's coming from. They don't know if they're going to make enough money from their trade at the end of the day to be able to supply for their family. They are have-nots in a world where the elite are the only haves in the world. And he says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, the powers that be, theirs are the kingdoms that lord over the 97% in the world. But the kingdom of heaven, the one that's actually really in charge, not the empire of Rome, that belongs to citizens that are poor in spirit. They know in the depths of their soul what it means to be poor and to have not. It is a reversal. Blessed are those who mourn. 
Why would these people be mourning? Yes, Jesus has in mind all sorts of people that are mourning, and we can imagine the mourning that people go through when they lose a loved one, when things don't go the way that they hope that they would go, when they're having a bad day. But Jesus has in mind something very specific here. People that are mourning the fact that, the, that they should be free to worship their God, but they are under oppression from the Romans. They are mourning their state of existence. Jesus says to those that mourn, they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek or the humble. Actually, in fact, this word here is almost identical to the word for poor. They will inherit the earth. At the time of Jesus, uh, the land that was promised to the Israelites to inherit was the land of Israel. But Jesus goes further than that because the world as a whole was created by God. And because of the kingdom being ushered in, those that Jesus is speaking to, the meek, will inherit the entirety of the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. These are the people that hunger and thirst because though they're living righteous lives, they are not being repaid for their righteousness. They are instead experiencing trouble. And Jesus is going to expound on the trouble that they are experiencing in a few verses later when he really gets into people being persecuted for his name. These people strive to be righteous, upstanding, just people to honor God with their lives, and yet they are in a state of hunger and thirst. They will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. When you live in a world where the powers that be come in and force their way onto you, their subjects, they show no mercy. The Romans showed no mercy. They excelled in the opposite of mercy. In fact, they were really good at torture devices like, I don't know, crucifying people, putting them on a cross. And so those that are merciful normally aren't repaid with mercy in the world around them. But because of the kingdom being ushered in, because Jesus has come, they will receive mercy as repayment for their merciful state of being. Blessed are the pure or just or clean in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Now, this translation here, you should know, uh, it literally says sons of God, and that's important because Jesus is no doubt preaching to a multitude of people, men, women, children here, but that phrase, sons of God, is important because not only is it a phrase that comes up again and again in the Old Testament, referring to the people of God, but it also uh, deals with the fact that in this world, sonship mattered. The son, oftentimes the firstborn son, was the heir apparent. They would be the recipient of the benefits that would come and be passed down to them. And so, for Jesus, those who are peacemakers will be called sons of God. They will be the ones inheriting what God has brought to them. 
And yet it is for all that are peacemakers that will be like sons of God here. And then Jesus concludes here and he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He concludes by saying, in more of a summary statement fashion, that those of you that try to strive to live upright lives in God-honoring ways to glorify God and to live up to his calling, those of you that are facing persecution— which when you think about all the reversals that are going on here, is a bit of a constant. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They will be the ones on the good side. And then he elaborates and he says, Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I love that Jesus concludes with that line that they persecuted the prophets before you because if you remember before when I was giving you the context, this was the norm for the people of God. Those that attempted to live upright lives were kicked down repeatedly. And Jesus says, those of you that follow me, that are my disciples, that are going to choose my way of life, they're going to make me Lord and Savior, and by virtue of that decision, we'll end up attempting to live out all the things I'm about to teach you in this sermon. You will face persecution. Notice he didn't say, blessed are you if people revile you and persecute you. When? because it's been happening and it will continue to do so. And yet Jesus has the audacity to say rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven from the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus tags on all of these blessing statements. This call to rejoice and be glad despite your troublesome and troubling circumstances. Because for Jesus, everything that you're experiencing now will be reversed if you stick with him. It happened before to the godly. It will happen to you too. But things won't remain that way. And the thing that I love about the Beatitudes as the opening to the Sermon on the Mount is that Oftentimes, we, we sit and, and, and we feel a bit of righteous indignation as we look at our own circumstances or we look at the world around us. And we might ask those questions that the disoriented psalmist asks, why God, why is this occurring? And Jesus answers that question, but he doesn't just answer it. He gives us a promise that because of the kingdom being ushered in, things are going to change. It is worth sticking it out because the God who is in control, the God who created everything is a dependable God, one who follows through. This isn't false hope. It's not blind optimism. It's certainty. 
and a certain God. And that's what makes this a powerful, powerful teaching. Because Jesus is telling those that are experiencing the downside of life that at the moment of his speaking, the upside is being ushered in. And he's inviting people not only to live out what God has called them to, but giving them a reason to stick it out. Have any of you ever put effort into something and you wondered whether or not the effort that you were putting in was worth it? Anybody? I think that many of us get into that battle on a daily basis. Maybe we are uh, at a job and we are putting in the work, but at the end of the day, we're not getting the acclaim, the upward mobility, whatever it is that we were promised or expected to get out of that. But we still put our head down and we do the work well because we are aiming for something higher than those worldly things. Maybe it's relationships. Maybe you've got strained relationships with family or friends and you continue to try to be the better person even though it keeps coming back to you in all the negative ways that you can imagine. And you wonder what good is it to say the right thing, to take the high road, to take the better posture. But you know that even if you don't get the immediate outcome that you're hoping for, that you're doing it for a higher aim. That's what Jesus is ultimately teaching. And it's important for us to recognize not only the context of the people that Jesus was speaking this to, but to realize that even if we're not in their sandals, we still experience the struggles in day-to-day life that cause us to come face-to-face with a question. And it's a very simple one. Is the effort I'm giving, is the work I'm doing, Is the good I attempt worth it? Because sometimes it doesn't feel like it is. We may not be in the deepest of holes that Jesus' earliest followers are, but we can relate on that one point. Asking the question, is it worth it? Because it doesn't always feel like it is. It doesn't always feel like we get the outcome that we long for, the accolades we deserve, the repaired and restored relationship that we desire. Just like Jesus' earliest followers may not have got the meal that they needed at the end of the night and might have asked, is it worth it? And Jesus opens up his famous Sermon on the Mount by saying, Yes, it's worth it. And I'll tell you why. Because I'm here. And the kingdom is here. And despite what you see around you and what you've had happen to you 
and the disappointment that you've been left with. I'm here, and from this moment forward, things are going to change. You follow me. I almost forgot the most important point in this whole passage. I didn't really forget it. I just left it for last. Do you notice that when Jesus started, he saw the crowds, and he went up to the mountain, and after he sat down, it says his disciples came to him. His disciples came to him. The Gospel of Matthew is going to end with those very disciples being commissioned to go and make disciples. Disciples who are not only baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but disciples who are taught what Jesus taught his disciples and taught to live out what Jesus' disciples were called to live out. This message was spoken for Jesus' disciples. And if you call yourself a disciple of Jesus, this reversal of fortune in a world that feels empty and broken and disappointing is for you too. And that's what makes this opening not only perfect for Jesus' sermon, but a beautiful teaching of hope for those of us that can at times in the small and the grand things feel hopeless in life. And that leads us to our time of communion today. When God sent his son into the world, he sent his son not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Our God is a God that comes through on the promise that things will get better if you just stick with him. And the proof in the pudding, so to speak, is when Jesus went to the cross. What power in that story. The very world power that was persecuting the Jewish people and the upstart Christians would put the Messiah to death on a cross. And that that act of conquering by the ruling power was not an act of conquering at all. It was a means of God enacting the plan and saying the rever reversal has begun. When we take communion each week, we not only are obedient to Jesus' command to do this in remembrance of him, but we remember that we have a God that comes through, that when he says sticking with him is worth it, he backs it up. I invite you to take a moment to pause and reflect, and after that time of reflection, we'll take communion together as one church family.
I invite you to take this bread and eat. This is his body which is given for us. And I invite you to take this cup and drink. This is his blood which is poured out for us. Please pray with me. Dear Lord God, I thank you for the words of your son Jesus that not only represent hope, uh, but give us a reason to cling to you and to follow in your footsteps. I thank you for not only the call to be disciples of your son Jesus and for the high bar that he raises, but for the fact that you don't leave us to our own devices uh, to follow suit, but that you made a way through him. And I pray, God, that his teaching to his earliest disciples, that though they were facing challenge after challenge in their lives, that they could have hope that help has come. And despite the fact, God, that our our lives may be different, our experiences, our disappointments, our challenges may be different, not only from them, but maybe even amongst ourselves in this room, I thank you for the fact that you call us to be obedient to you and that you encourage us with these words to let us know that it's worth it. Keep them on the forefront of our minds and in our hearts and help us to be obedient to you in all that we say and do by the power of your spirit. And we thank you for being so good to us. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.